says in verse 27, and at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of the city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with him. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his own word. And then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And Father, we just humbly want to ask that as we spend this time together as a part of our worship of you, just looking at the word of God, believing that you've given it to speak to us, that which is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that as men and women of God this day, we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We pray that your Holy Spirit who inspired the word of God would now be our teacher and our interpreter and our instructor and that you would speak to us, Lord, and that we would have sensitive hearts and a desire even to hear what you might say to us, that we'd hear the voice of the Lord this morning. Bless your word. Speak to us, we ask expectantly, and we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You ever taken notice before that a lot of times when God works, it's not exactly perhaps how you planned it might take place. I have found again and again, and I see when I read the Bible so many times, that oftentimes the work of God happens, particularly at times among people groups or maybe among communities, in a much different way maybe than we might envision or we might even expect. And God at times can and will, from what I have seen, reach maybe a people group or a subculture or maybe even a whole community, just one soul at a time. Or sometimes he will perhaps have an impact on one person's life in such a way that that one person becomes sort of, if you would, like the little spark that starts the entire forest fire of a real spiritual awakening or a real spiritual work. And I think John chapter 4 is one of these chapters that illustrates those things. This is a chapter that teaches us as we continue now with this dialogue and situation between Jesus and this one woman he spoke to at a well that teaches us spiritual principles, I believe, of how God works how the work of God happens. It shows us things about the importance and the value and even the fulfillment that we can find
find as Christians as we enter into the service of our Lord and make ourselves useful in the fields of this world. The background, which is critical certainly to where we pick up in verse 27 this morning, is this. Remember, Jesus, sensing that the Father wanted to do a work in the area of Samaria, it tells us as he began to travel north, indicated to his disciples, it seems, this important need that he must go through Samaria. Now, that was much to their surprise, as we said, because there was an incredible level of animosity and ethnic hatred and prejudice between the Jews and the Samaritans. But Jesus sensed that the father had a work that he wanted to do there. And when they went through Samaria, they arrived at a well at the hottest part of the day. And Jesus then sent his disciples into the city there, the local area, to get some food and to bring it back, leaving him alone there at the well. And he, being wearied, sat down by this well. And then this one woman, likely wanting to avoid probably contact with any other individual, comes out to the well to draw water all by herself. And likely, as we saw, because of the shameful, immoral lifestyle she had, she didn't want to engage with other people. She didn't want to interact with other individuals. She had somewhat isolated because of her immoral and shameful lifestyle. And Jesus sees her. She comes out to the well. And much to her surprise as well, he then engages her in conversation. And he begins to speak to her. We saw about things that she could relate to. He began to talk to her, remember, about thirst and about the water to drink that everyone needs in some ways. And he began to speak to her in things that she could relate to her thirst and the need for water to satisfy thirst. And then he sought to turn the conversation using terms she could relate to, to that which was spiritual and eternal to meet the deepest need in her life. Glance with me back, if you would, there in verse 13 of chapter 4. We see that Jesus said to her, remember the conversation, he said, whoever drinks of this water, pointing to the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So Jesus begins to speak of what's spiritual and eternal. And as her heart begins to be stirred in the conversation, Jesus then reveals to her two more things. First of all, he revealed to her that he knew everything about her life, much to her utter shock. He told her exactly everything she had done, the five husbands she had, the fact she was now living with a man in an immoral relationship that wasn't even her husband. And as he told her everything about her life, he then went on to not harp on that subject, but to explain to her the way of God and the way of worship more accurately, to which we then concluded our study last time, verse 25. Let's pick it up there where the woman said to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming who is called the Christ, the promised Savior. And when he comes, he will tell us all things to which Jesus said, quite a revelation, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. We'll pick up with me in verse 27. We go on, it says, and at this point in the experience, his disciples now came, that is returning from the city where they went to buy food, and they marveled that Jesus talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the disciples now returning back from the city where they went to buy food and supplies come back and they see Jesus sitting at this well engaging in a conversation with this one Samaritan woman. And as they see this, we see here that they are quite shocked. The text tells us, look at it, verse 27. It says they marveled that he talked with a woman. That word marveled there is a term that means astonished, 
It means amazed. It means that they were left wondering. Again, the reason, be careful, is not because Jesus is doing something wrong. Jesus never sinned, so we could never come to that conclusion. They weren't marveling and questioning this because he was doing something wrong, but because, as we said, he was violating culturally held attitudes. And he was, in a sense, doing things, practices that people of that day did not do. First of all, the cultural reality that in that day, culturally, men did not speak or address women in public. Quite frankly, not even their own wives or their own daughters, let alone some strange woman that you've never met before that you have no interaction or relationship with. So this was, again, it was, it was different than what the people in that day did culturally. And it, it shocked them that Jesus was doing this, that he was reaching out and being kind and conversational with this woman, as well as, of course, they marveled, were left wondering and questioning, as I said, because of that deep-rooted hatred and animosity that existed between Jews and Samaritan people who had no interaction with each other. Remember last time we told you that Jews would inconvenience themselves and would go over the Jordan, leave out of the country of Israel itself just to avoid the whole area of Samaria and then come back in once they got to the northern area of Galilee. So this is a deep-rooted animosity between two people groups, as we said, that lasted for hundreds of of years and now here's Jesus breaking this cultural barrier and reaching out to this woman who was a Samaritan woman and again why because of the love of God because of the concern for this woman's soul and the awareness of what needed to happen for God's work to take place in this unique situation Jesus disregards worldly patterns he sets aside the customs and cultural boundaries and animosity between people groups and he overcomes those barriers for the higher purposes of God and because of his eternal concern for her soul. As a result, the disciples, however, are left marveling and astonished and they are questioning what Jesus is doing. They're questioning why this is happening. And notice, not having the courage, it seems, to challenge or ask Jesus out loud. You see what verse 27 says? It says, yet no one said. <laughs> they, they didn't challenge this out loud. They were saying, however, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Probably, which indicates they were either thinking that in their minds, they were questioning it in their minds, what's he doing? Why is he doing this? Or maybe they were even, as they came up upon him, saying this among themselves, but when they got to Jesus, they, of course, just did not say this out loud. Now, remember, as I said a moment ago, Jesus never sinned. He only fulfilled the will of God. Yet sometimes we see here once again that when Jesus is at work, it does not always make sense to people who are observing what he's doing. Sometimes when our Lord is at work, people, quite frankly, may even be initially shocked by what's taking place or what the experience is. And they may look upon it, quite honestly, in a way where the logical mind doesn't make sense. It doesn't line up with their reasoning, but yet the reality is it is completely in line with the will of God. And yet it does not make sense to human reasoning and it therefore may provoke people to question what's happening or to misunderstanding at first. And I point this out to you this morning because sometimes when our Lord is directing our lives, sometimes when the Lord is at work in a particular situation and the work of God is happening in a right and a righteous way, the exact same experience may take place. 
It may be the work of God and completely aligned with the will of God, but yet people are going to look upon it and they're going to question it. Or they may look upon it and they may not understand. They may even misunderstand what's happening. And they may begin to speculate and question because it doesn't line up with their reasoning of how they think God should be working or how they think things should take place because maybe it challenges their cultural views or it violates their personal persuasions or perspectives. Again, listen, please hear what I'm saying. I'm not endorsing being weird. Don't leave here and be weird and make people question you and say, well, Pastor Tony said that when we're really serving God, people are going to question us. I'm not saying do questionable things. <laughs> I'm not saying be a weird Christian. We get enough bad press on TV as it is. You notice that's always what shows up on Christian press. It's not the good things that are happening. It's the quacky things that are happening. I'm not saying do things that are questionable or be weird, but I am saying this, that when our Lord is at work, it's not always going to please people. It's not always perhaps going to work in a way whereby everybody is happy about it, or maybe even everybody feels comfortable. I found in my own Christian experience, personally, as well as in the work of God in ministry, that sometimes Jesus has no problem stretching people's wrong attitudes. He has no problem sometimes working in a way whereby it challenges the ideas of other people that are watching it. But yet it's the will of God. It's the work of the Lord taking place. So here the disciples come back. They're somewhat baffled by this. Look at the story as it goes on. It says, And then the woman left her water pot, went her way into the city, and she said to the men of the city, Come, see a man who told me all things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? So as the meeting and conversation between Jesus and the disciples kind of gets interrupted now as the disciples return back, the woman now, we read, departs. She heads back to the city and what's the first thing she does? She starts to share immediately with the men of the town what just took place between her and Jesus. It almost seems there, if you look at verse 28, as if it was kind of a quick or abrupt departure by the woman. It says she left the water pot and went back to town. I can't help but to wonder, again, perhaps she felt maybe a bit awkward when the disciples showed up maybe she sensed like we do sometimes kind of you know when people don't seem to be approving and there's kind of that awkward elephant in the room kind of the feeling and perhaps as they came back maybe looking a bit astonished and couldn't hide it she felt a little awkward certainly if that wasn't the case i know one thing she is extremely excited by the encounter she just had with jesus personally and her heart is so stirred with enthusiasm because of this encounter with jesus Her heart's been moved in a way like it's never been moved before. And she has truth burning in her heart now and the awareness of the plan of God she never knew. And Jesus spoke into her in such a powerful way. Her cup is just overflowing, man. And she's just overflowing with enthusiasm about the things of God. So because of that, she wants to go tell other people now what she's just experienced. I love how the Bible records for us there in verse 28 it says that the woman left her water pot. I would say to you, that's very unusual because keep in mind that water pot was a critical essential thing for her everyday living to go out there and to draw water. My question then becomes this, was that accidental? Did she leave the water pot because like you and I, she was just so excited and overwhelmed between what happened between her and Jesus that she just forgot it and she couldn't even think and she could have been that. Or I also wonder, perhaps, maybe was that purposeful? Was that intentional? 
In other words, did she maybe leave the water pot there because she intended very specifically to go tell others and to bring them back out to Jesus? And she thought, I'll get the water pot later because I'm coming back anyway. <laughs> I'm going to go get other people because they need to meet Jesus. They need to come know Jesus. Or did she leave it there intentionally, perhaps, because her inward thirst was now fully satisfied? And because of the living water that Jesus spoke about had impacted her life in such a way that she is now so satisfied within and her thirst is quenched that she's not as interested or concerned with drawing from the wells of the world or physical pleasure anymore. And so it just didn't really seem that important to her anymore. Again, either way, we can't be sure. But it is interesting to me that the Holy Spirit chooses in the Word of God to record for us that little detail that the woman left her water pot there. It didn't have to be there. Because I think as I look at it, it shows me that here she has this incredible encounter with Jesus. And after an encounter with Jesus, she left her water pot. That's a beautiful picture either way of what happens in people's lives spiritually. Again, remember verse 13 and 14? Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, Jesus said. But whoever drinks of the water that I give will never thirst. Your thirst will be quenched and satisfied. And is it not very true that when a person has been drinking from the different wells of this world for a while and they're trying again and again to fill themselves and find satisfaction at this well, the well of pleasure, the well of profit, the well of you know, position and, and trying relationships and substances and you know, entertainment and everything under the sun. And they're drinking it well after well after well because they're trying to find internal satisfaction and contentment. And then yet once the work of God happens in their soul, all of a sudden, something really crazy happens. Once the work of God happens and they experience the living water that only Jesus can give by His Spirit in the depth of a human soul, how in that moment, all of a sudden, they find this inward and ongoing satisfaction they never knew in their life before. And everything all of a sudden seems quenched, the thirst, the appetite, and there's this newfound contentment within a person's soul that was never there before. And what does it do? Here's what it does. It breaks the cycle of that driving, pressing need that keeps a person so thirsting after finding fulfillment in all kinds of other things. And all of a sudden, that need and that cycle gets broke and we can somehow then sort of leave behind, if you would, the old water pots. Because we're not going back to all those old wells in the way that we once felt the need to anymore. And perhaps as you look at that, you say, man, boy, that, I can relate to that. Because that, that was me. I can relate to that. I remember this inward fulfillment and satisfaction when I finally met Jesus and, and kind of the old water pots that I used to go fill up on this and fill up on that. I don't need that anymore. I don't even want that. In fact, I want to smash that old water pot. That stuff was poison, man. I don't want to drink that stagnant water anymore. And if you're here this morning, let me say this as well. Perhaps you may not be able to relate to this, but I assure you, whether you admit it or not, I know you desire it. Because it gets really, really tiring and frustrating and discouraging drinking again and again and again and again and trying this well and trying that well and trying this well and trying that well. Listen, there is a fountain of living water it comes from the person of Jesus Christ. 
And if you are willing to encounter and experience him, he can quench the thirst in your life and you can smash all your water pots. Let me save you a bunch of hassle. Let me save you the bad experiences of what happens when you drink stagnant water. Mm -hmm. We don't want to talk about that in mixed company. But that's the way many people in our world live because there's a thirst and they don't realize the thirst is for God. It's a thirst for Jesus and that living water and how wonderful that that is available to all of us. As this woman's cup is now filled and I think overflowing, our text shows us that she can't wait to get back to town to go tell other people what happens. 28 and 29 tell us she goes back and she says to the people right away, come see a man. She says, who told me all things I ever did? Could this be the Christ? In other words, she right away reveals that Jesus miraculously told her everything about her life. Remember back in verses 16 through 18, that's what happened. Jesus said, go call your husband. She said, I, actually, I don't have a husband. He said, I know you've had five husbands. And the guy you're now living with isn't even your husband. And she was shocked. He was a total stranger. How could he know everything about her life? She never met him before. And she realized the divinity of who Jesus was, that he was... He had to have been God. How else could he know that? And she says, this man, he told me everything about my whole life. And I think what astonished this woman too, giving the immoral background of her lifestyle, I think what astonished her was not just that Jesus knew everything, but he knew everything she ever done and all her sins and all her failures. And yet he was very loving still. He wasn't cruel with her. He didn't mock her or berate her or treat her disrespectfully. He was gentle. He was compassionate. He was kind. And he revealed all of the dirt and filth of her lifestyle. But yet at the same token, he desired to continue to engage her in a relationship and continue in the conversation. He didn't shame her. He was deeply concerned about her. And Jesus revealed that to her. And she had never been treated like that before. She had never experienced something like that before. So she testified and witnessed of that as well as the fact that she realized, wow, perhaps this is the Messiah. She said to them, look at there, could this be the Christ? In other words, she's saying, could this be possible that this is the one that we have been waiting for, the Messiah of Israel, the one who God said he would send? And her personal testimony, look at it, it arouses people's consideration that Jesus just might be the Savior that God said that he would send. And I love to look at this woman's brief testimony because it illustrates three things of what a, a good, healthy, personal testimony does. Three things let me briefly draw your attention to about her testimony. What's her testimony? Well, number one, it was a description of her own personal experience with Jesus. You see what she says there? This man told me everything I ever did. That was her personal experience with Jesus. She was saying, let me tell you what happened in my life between me and this man, Jesus. The second thing her testimony included was drawing attention to who Jesus is and making people think about that. Could this be the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah? She drew attention to who Jesus was. And then the third and final thing her testimony included was inviting people to come see Jesus for themselves. What does she say there? She says, verse 29, come and see him for yourself. And I look at that and I say, you know what? That's something every single one of us who knows Jesus can do in our world. We can share our testimony. Oh, listen, share your testimony. Tell people, number one, tell people what Jesus did in your life. You don't need to know the five spiritual laws, the 10 perfect concepts of Christian you know, evangelism. Look, just tell people what Jesus did in your life. 
What was your experience? Tell him whatever it was. God gave you that experience. You don't have to have a cooler experience. Oh, man, well, I didn't ride with hell's angels and murder six people, and I, I got a boring testimony. Listen, you have the testimony you have because that's what God intended. It's your testimony. And you may be talking to someone that doesn't need a testimony like that. Tell them what Jesus did in your life, your personal experience, number one. Draw their attention to who Jesus is. Talk about Jesus. Don't talk about church. Don't talk about a Calvary chapel. Don't talk about this and Christian. Talk about Jesus. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus you know, it was in clearly revealed to be. And, and what are you going to do with Jesus? Make people think about Jesus. And then do what this woman did and say, why don't you come see for yourself? Why don't you see for yourself? I'm telling you what Jesus did for me and telling you who Jesus is, but you need to see for yourself. That's great evangelism and a great testimony. Well, look at verse 30 as our text goes on. It tells us there, in verse 30, that they then came out from the city and came to him. So look at this beautiful thing. As this woman shares her testimony, at this point, she stirs apparently a pretty large group from that community to respond and go see Jesus as she invited them to, which to me is a great encouragement because I see here that sometimes the power and the influence of a personal testimony of one person is sometimes more effective than a really great sermon preached to a crowd. This is just one person's testimony that's enthusiastic about the Lord. And as a result, it seems like a good percentage of the town, a large part of them, all come out of the city to come see Jesus. Verse 31 now, this, the camera, look at it, it pans back, if you would, to Jesus and the disciples. So we went with the woman back to the city. Now the camera pans back to the well where Jesus and the disciples had been left there alone as the woman left. And it says to us now, in the meantime... His disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. To which he then said, I have food of which you do not know. And therefore the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? So his disciples return. They no doubt start to eat because they're all hungry. That's why they went to get food. And they're noticing that Jesus seems preoccupied that they're sitting there chowing down and Jesus doesn't even seem to be very interested in the food and they know that he's hungry and weary. That's why they were sent into town. So it says there in verse 31, they start to urge him, Rabbi, you need to eat. You need to eat. To which Jesus then makes this unusual statement as they're urging him to eat. He says, verse 32, listen, I have food to eat which you don't know about. And the disciples said, Huh? Didn't we go into town to buy food? He was here by himself. Is there a Domino's here in Samaria that we didn't know? I mean, how did he get food out here? He was here by himself at a well and out in the midst of a desert. Like, where did he get? How did he get food to eat? Did somebody bring him food to eat? What does he mean that he has food? We just went and brought back food. So they're kind of bewildered by this. Again, they're thinking along the line of the physical. Has anyone brought him anything to eat? The conversation continues. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food, look at it, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So Jesus, knowing they're thinking in natural terms, indicates that he's, he's illustrating a spiritual reality once again. He's saying to the disciples here that what he's sustained by and finds fulfillment in is doing his father's will and fulfilling the works that his father has given to him spiritually. Again, if we think of what food is, as Jesus uses this kind of metaphor here, food represents the thing that a person needs 
to indulge, if you would, to be sustained, to be empowered, uh, to be uh, fulfilled for their physical life. So Jesus uses that as a metaphor now to illustrate the spiritual life, putting the priority and the emphasis on the inward experience of a person and putting the priority on what's spiritual and eternal. In essence, Jesus is saying this, in the same way that people draw what they need from physical food, he says there, look at it, my food, my food, he says, in other words, what I'm sustained by, Jesus is saying, above all else, what empowers and fulfills me more than anything else in my life is very simply, he says, to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I want you to notice, Jesus' strongest desire as a man was to be obedient and was to be faithful to the will of his Father in heaven and to fulfill his plan. Doing that is what fulfilled Jesus more than anything else. Fulfilling his Father's will is what empowered him and gave fresh life to him. It's what sustained him and brought him inner contentment above anything else that he could do during his earthly life. It was doing the will, Jesus said, of him who sent me. Now that statement, doing the will of him who sent me, that speaks of Jesus' obedience and his submission. His obedience and submission. Jesus was not self-willed. Meaning Jesus was not pursuing or pushing for what he desired in his earthly life as a man. He was not searching after what he wanted. He was instead seeking to keep doing what his father wanted. Because of his love for the father in heaven, knowing his life was to serve a purpose, his greatest desire was to know what pleases the father in heaven. That's what I want to do because that's what I find the most fulfillment in. That's what sustains me more than anything else. What does the Father want done? In John chapter 6, Jesus is going to make this statement. He's going to say, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Please notice, Jesus lived submissively obeying whatever the Father asked, whatever the Father desired for him to do. And let me say this, even in the hour of Jesus' greatest pressure, his greatest stress, his greatest suffering in his humanity, Jesus did what? He prayed earnestly for strength and then again he relinquished and he let go of and surrendered his own thoughts and his own feelings and said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. At the hour of his greatest stress, at the hour of his greatest suffering, when Jesus had every pressure upon him and his thoughts and his feelings probably in every way challenging what was the will of God, he prayed for strength and he continued with a heart of obedience and submission that said, Father, your will be done. And Jesus says the reason is, is because fulfillment, strength, empowerment, sustainment in the inner person. He says it is found in doing the will of the Father in heaven. As a man, Jesus represented in his life and his service and his ministry, submission in his spirit and obedience in his actions and what he did. Jesus also says it wasn't just to do the will of him who sent me, but he said my desire also, look at it there, verse 34 at the end, my desire also, and I love this, he says is to finish his work. That to me speaks of Jesus' faithfulness and his commitment that Jesus found fulfillment, again, 
He found inner satisfaction and fulfillment in completing the work of God that he undertook. Now, whether that was everyday works that God gave him to do, good works every day, or whether it was the overarching overall work of redemption, it was finishing what God gave him to do that gave him fulfillment. Jesus did not start things that the Father told him to do and then not carry them out to completion. Jesus, listen, was a finisher. He finished things. He finished what the Father gave him to do. Jesus was chiefly concerned with the glory of God, with honoring God with his life and all that he did, and therefore he was always committed to what he began and did to finish the work the Father gave to him. Listen to a part of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. Hear his words. Jesus said, Father, I have glorified you on earth. How? I have finished the work which you have given me to do. What was one of those famous last seven statements of Jesus on the cross? As he's dying, pouring out his life in faithfulness and commitment, Jesus said, it is finished. Jesus finished everything the Father entrusted to him and as the perfect man, as the model man, I've said before, again, Jesus is fully God and fully man. So we worship him as God, but we follow him as a man in who he was in his humanity. And Jesus, as the model perfect man, as an effective servant, manifested the rare human quality of faithfulness and commitment and following through with commitment and staying strong in commitment. No matter what others thought, he remained committed. No matter what pressures came against him, what happened, what interfered, what sought to resist, Jesus was not satisfied unless he finished, unless he carried things to completion. And I look at this and I think what a great example for those of us who claim to be followers of Christ. For those of us who have the Spirit of Christ at work within us, that we should to a greater and greater degree be experiencing and demonstrating the same. Let me ask you a question this morning. What truly gives you the greatest fulfillment? What gives you the greatest satisfaction in your life? What is it? I hope more and more for all of us, what would give us the greatest fulfillment and satisfaction would be doing the will of God and finishing whatever God gives us to do. Because so often, even as Christians, we can go back to the wells of the world and we can become self-willed again and take our little tours of backsliding and still be self-willed and begin to find fulfillment and try and find fulfillment in all kinds of other things. And I tell you this morning, serving the purposes of God is the only thing that will give you fulfillment to the greatest degree. We can try all kinds of other things, but the greatest fulfillment, you are you dissatisfied this morning? Are you discontent this morning? Do you, listen, can I encourage you? Start pursuing the will of God for your life a little bit more. Start pursuing what God's will is, even when it's hard. At times when everything is grating against you, your emotions, your thoughts, feelings, to say, you know what? No. I am going to do the will of God. And I tell you this, on the other side of that, you won't be empty, you'll be satisfied. You'll be contented 
Because you'll experience the contentment and the fulfillment and the strengthening and the satisfaction. It will become your food to keep you going to a greater degree because you have that inner contentment that you did the will of God. And for those of us who are here this morning, what's your level of submission and obedience to God's will? Jesus was obedient to the will of God. He was submitted to the will of God. And for all of us here who are believers as well this morning, how about our faithfulness? How about our commitment to the work of God, to the things He entrusts us to? God's given us all good works to do. God's given us all different levels of responsibilities, commitments, marriages, responsibilities, ministries. What's our level of commitment to those things? Do we finish the things that God gives us to do? Or do we start things with great enthusiasm and then get sidetracked by this over here and get sidetracked by that over there? Again, the spirit of Jesus is a spirit of faithfulness. It's a spirit of commitment. You know, to me, one of the most, at times, you know, saddening things, I can tell you from a pastoral perspective, whether it's you know, being involved in other believers' lives a lot or ministry things, is so often to see such a very weak level of commitment among Christians. We have this spirit of Jesus within us. If you commit to something, be committed. Whether that's your marriage, whether that's some form of service, whether that's some obligation or responsibility, listen, be committed. Carry it through. Be faithful. Is it going to be easy? No. What if Jesus said, you know, I was going to do this, but it's getting really hard. I mean, there's a lot of resistance. Are people ripping out your beard? Are people spitting on you and mocking you? Are people scourging you and pinning you to a cross? Our level of commitment and faithfulness in comparison to the level of Jesus' faithfulness is honestly nothing in comparison. Be a faithful person. Be a committed person. And do that because that's what honors God. That's what glorifies God. And again, that will be like food. You'll find fulfillment and satisfaction. Not in quitting and giving up or forsaking your marriage. Or be, you'll find fulfillment by being faithful, by being committed. You'll find that it strengthens you and gives you a sense of satisfaction that you've never had before in your life as Jesus experienced as well. well look at verse 35. He says, Do you not say there are still four months? And then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white. The idea is ripe for harvest. So apparently, Jesus is again is using this analogy to relate, to illustrate how the work of God among the harvest fields of the world happens. And it seems this was a commonly used saying among the farming culture. They would say, there are still four more months and then comes the harvest. The idea of that statement, there are still four months and then comes the harvest, it was a statement that meant there is a needed gap of time between, farmers would say, when you plant the seed and then you wait until there's a time of harvesting the fruit or the grain. So no work would be done because it seemed that it was not the proper time yet. So Jesus says, look, you're taking that analogy and carrying it into spiritual life in a way that's not good. So Jesus says, look, I know that you think there needs to be a gap of time of sitting around. He says, verse 35, behold, I say to you, that should be more important than what the people say in the world. I say to you, lift up your eyes. Look at the fields, for they are already white or ripe for the harvest. In other words, Jesus' disciples apparently, from his perspective, were kind of sitting back 
and they weren't engaging in the work of the Lord in the fields of the world that they should have been among the unsaved. And Jesus is kind of challenging their complacency here a little bit. He's sort of stoking the disciples' error and saying, look, you need to open up your eyes. He's telling them, you need to see things properly from an eternal perspective. He says, I say to you, open your eyes. The opportunity in the fields of God's world are ripe as can be. They're ready. He says, don't delay, don't sit back, don't hold back. He says, that would only be a waste of time and opportunity. And I think this is a good exhortation because as disciples of Jesus today, I think we need to hear that same challenge regarding the fields of our world. If the time was short then, how much shorter is it now? And we, just like the disciples, if we're honest with ourselves, we can often become guilty, I know I can, of being complacent or apathetic whether it's in our perspective or our efforts of reaching the unsaved world and the fields of the unsaved, or whether it's just doing the works of God in various forms of ministry. Remember Jesus, when he had compassion, as he looked at the world around him, who he was ministering to like sheep without a shepherd, Jesus looked at that and his heart was broken and he said, the harvest is what? Truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. And he said, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Jesus said, there's no lack of work. There's a lot that could be done in fields all over the place. And it's, it's a plentiful harvest that's there. But he says, the problem is, is there are so many that are preoccupied in other things. They're not willing to roll up their sleeves and labor in what really matters or has lasting impact. So he says, pray over this, pray. Again, I like that. He doesn't say plead. He doesn't say plead. Please work for God. <laughs> he says, pray, Lord, send out laborers. Lord, give us people that want to work, that want to serve, that want to spend their lives for the kingdom of God. Jesus then says, verse 36, and he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps can rejoice together. For in this saying it is true, one sows and another Reap. So again, using farming language, Jesus indicates there, I think, a few spiritual principles of how the work of God happens among the harvest fields out in this world. Jesus says, as the work of God happens in the harvest fields of the world, whether it's spiritual service or ministry or evangelism, he says that there are a few principles that, that God intends. Three things, particularly briefly, I'll point out to your attention from these verses. First of all, that partnership is part of God's plan. Partnership is part of God's plan. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, one sows and then another reaps. That's by design. The work wasn't all to be done by one person. It couldn't all be done by one person. And part of God's design in the work of his fields is that there's contribution by more than one person. That there's multiple people contributing a partnership, a teamwork for multiple reasons. I'll tell you one, because then when the fruit comes in, one person doesn't try and take all the glory or the credit for it. It's hard to do that when there's been multiple people who've contributed to the work of God in different ways. Teamwork and service is so that, look at verse 36, the one who sows and reaps can rejoice together. That a joint effort can bring joint celebration in what God has done and the fruit that God has brought and the blessing that God has brought and the recognition that this work is the result of multiple people's efforts instead of envy or arrogance, you have rejoicing together saying, wow, look at the good fruit that God's brought. 
Look at the great things he's done. So partnership is part of God's plan, and which also shows us not everybody's going to have the same function or role in the work of God. Some are going to plow up the ground. Some are going to plant seed and sow seed. Others are going to water. Others are going to reap. That often holds true in evangelism. 1 Corinthians 12 speaks of how there are multiple different gifts and people who contribute to the work of God as it happens among his church. And the third thing I see is this, is that God always rewards spiritual labor. Could you see what Jesus says in verse 36 there? He who reaps will receive wages and gather fruit for eternal life. God always makes sure to compensate those who serve him. He always makes sure to, to reward, if you would, both now and eternally. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight says, My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Again, in Galatians 6, where Paul talked about using the same analogy, sowing and reaping, Paul said, Let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in the proper season we will reap a harvest if we don't lose heart, if we don't give up. Again, keeping the hand of the plow, continuing trusting that God will not be mocked, God will reward that which is done for him and for his kingdom. Well, verse 38 tells us, Jesus said to them, I sent you to reap that which you haven't labored. Others have labored and you've entered into their labor. So apparently Jesus was telling the disciples, you got the easy part in the process. He says, others have gone before you and they've done the hard work of plowing up the ground and planting the seed and I'm just sending you out now, Jesus says, to reap the reward, to reap the fruit that's been prepared to pluck from the trees, if you would. And verse 39 says, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, telling me he told me all things I ever did. Again, notice the result of the one woman and the word of her testimony one woman's enthusiastic, courageous testimony impacted and reached, you could say, a whole city. Because it says there in our text, many of the Samaritans of the city believed in him because of the word of that woman. I look at that, remember what I said earlier? That shows me that woman was the one small spark that started, if you would, a forest fire of spiritual awakening among the Samaritan people. Which is a great exhortation for my heart this morning. Don't ever minimize the value of sharing the Lord with just one person. Because we have no idea the far-reaching impact or influence that may in turn have on many, many, many people. We never, ever know. You might reach a whole community or people group by introducing one person to Jesus. Listen, I'll be very honest with you. I realize I'm certainly not lighting the world on fire in ministry, but do you know how I got saved? Not in a church service. One friend told me about Jesus and led me to Christ. One friend. He had no idea who he was leading to Christ. But we never know. You could lead one person to Christ and that person could be the next Billy Graham. They could become somebody who in a subculture all of a sudden begins to reach a whole subculture of people because they have such influence in that subculture. So don't diminish the value of sharing with one person. Sometimes God will not only do that, but he'll use the most unlikely person. I think that woman was probably the most unlikely person people thought would be an effective tool of the Lord. But God could use anybody. And this morning, if you're here, listen, God can use you. It does not matter what your background has been. Think of this woman's background. Five failed marriages, living in immorality, 
If your heart is truly right with Jesus and you're willing to be faithful, he can use you in a powerful way as well. It does not matter who you are and what your life has been. Verse 40, let's wrap it up. It says, So then the Samaritans had come to him. They urged Jesus then stay. And he stayed two more days. And then look at it, verse 41. Now many more. So many believed, but now many more believed because of Jesus' own words. So the result of Jesus remaining there a few days, continuing to speak, it's almost as if the spiritual fire of awakening just spread even further. Now it says many more believed because of hearing Jesus directly. The power of the word of the Lord speaking to them, having impact. Again, it's like powerful seed, the word of the Lord. And it brought good fruit unto eternal life. Multitudes in that city were getting saved and believing in Jesus. And ministry was happening very fruitfully in that area of Samaria, which let's think about this, was probably the most unlikely place anybody ever thought a good thing of God could happen. It was in Samaria. But sometimes God doesn't only work in unusual ways and in unlikely people, but sometimes he'll work in the most unlikely place and that's where a wonderful awakening of his spirit can begin to happen. Verse 42, the story concludes saying, and then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard from him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world. Boy, verse 42 is one of those great testaments in the Bible that there is nothing that can substitute for direct personal experience with Jesus yourself. These people say to the woman, listen, thanks for telling us what you did about Jesus and what he did in your life. But we want you to know, now we believe, not because of what you said, we've heard it for ourselves. We've experienced it for ourselves. And now we know, not because of what you say, we know because we've experienced it for ourselves, he is the savior of the world. And can I just say this morning, isn't that what we want everybody to know? Not secondhand our spiritual experience, but we want people to know firsthand for themselves directly to have their own faith, their own conviction to know who Jesus is. And this morning, if you're here, I ask, do you know that for yourself? Do you know for yourself? Not, oh, my wife tells me all this. No, do you know for yourself? He's the Savior of the world. But is He your Savior? It'd be a bummer to say, yeah, I hear he's the savior of the world. Great stuff. I really believe. My parents say he's the savior of the world. But is he your savior? Because you're part of the world. 